So as Ron said, we're concluding the series today on generosity. And for those that can recall, seven weeks ago now, right back in week one, uh, we started the series on generosity and God's grace. And we looked at the parable of the rich Pharisee and the tax collector. And the tax collector that was very repentant and receiving of God's grace. So we began with talking about the importance of receiving Jesus' generosity towards us first of all. Then we looked at generosity in relationships and the importance of generosity and forgiveness and, and being generous in forgiving others and how that's an important part of our relationships with others. We looked at hospitality, generosity and hospitality, the rich man's banquet and um, how we're called to be generous with our hospitality. And then we've had two weeks on generosity and wealth, the account of the rich young ruler who was told by Jesus to sell all of his possessions and give to the poor. And then a couple of weeks ago, the parable of the shrewd manager. And then last week, Ron spoke to us on the importance of generosity and ministry and found it really encouraging as we are created to do good works that God's prepared in advance for us to do what Ron shared. For those of us who were last week and heard that, I found that video that Ron shared really encouraging, the video um, of the Olympic runner, um, Eric Liddell. Uh, the fact that he was called to be a runner. That was his calling at that time, to be a runner. And he did end up in ministry. He did end up as a missionary in China. But you remember that clip when his sister was encouraging him to go for it now? And he said, I feel God's pleasure as I run. I feel God's delight as I run. And I can, I can testify to that in, in, in my work, and I'm sure we all can as well. And into, I found that the topics on generosity and money really interesting. I work a, for a company that advises other companies on how to engage their employees with their pensions. That's fun, isn't it? Uh, but it's all about pensions and money and financial education and financial well-being. And it's, it's really interesting because I see, a lo- obviously, a lot of the Word of God applying even to my work. In fact, um, Stephen Webb, the previous pension secretary who brought in auto-enrolment, which is the automatic enrolment into pensions, uh, he's a really strong Christian, and he believes that that was God's calling on, on his life, and he continues to, to work for other companies now. But, you know, it's really encouraging to see God's heart and hand in the workplace and in ministry as well. So today we're talking generosity and power, and we're looking at the life of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, And I want to look at the Zacchaeus before he met Jesus, the Zacchaeus after he met Jesus, and the impact that Jesus had on Zacchaeus' attitude towards his money and his power, importantly, his power and his authority. So just to set the scene for this encounter between Jesus and Zacchaeus, by now Jesus has fed 5,000. He's healed 10 lepers. He's raised somebody from the dead. He's healed many, he's driven out demons. These were not low-profile miracles. He was well-known. So you knew when Jesus was around because there would be a massive crowd. There'd be noise, there'd be buzz, there'd be excitement. Jesus was in town. You could hear it. You see the dust of people's feet and it would just be exciting. There'd be a, a buzz in the air when Jesus is in town. And Jesus at this point is entering into the city of Jericho. Now, Jericho is about 20 miles east of uh, Jerusalem, and it is the most, uh, the deepest uh, in terms of a lower sea level town in the world, actually. It's quite near the Dead Sea. And so you think, well, it can't be a very rich town then. It must be very barren in terms of resources, but actually it's fed by a lot of springs, and those springs create some really nice trees. 
And one particular tree releases this white sap called balm. And balm was a very, very expensive perfume. And it was used to create very expensive perfumes. You can actually buy balm of Gilead perfume even now. So actually, despite its location, Jericho is a really, really rich city. Very, very wealthy. So to be the chief tax collector in Jericho was an absolute coup. Tax collectors would bid for a patch. The highest bidder would get it. They'd go out, they'd actually pay the Roman Empire before collecting the taxes. So the one who paid the most would, would get the, the, the patch. And then the tax collectors would go out and just reap in as much as they can. When they've broken even, they're happy, and then it, the rest of it is profit. And that's how they operated. And tax collectors were self-employed. They weren't just tax collectors. They'd often lend money to people um, at really high interest rates. Uh, they were known in the region. Uh, the chief tax collector was very powerful because he'd get money from all of the other tax collectors working for him as well as his own dealings. And as we've heard on previous weeks, um, at this time, Israel is under Roman occupation. And the Romans weren't silly. They didn't say, we're going to just dominate you and squeeze you. They said, actually, we're going to let you carry on doing all your trade. But we're going to tax you for it. And those taxes paid for the building of Roman roads, the whole Roman Empire. So tax collectors were colluders with the Roman Empire, number one. Not a very good place to be. They were unpopular for that. They were also Jewish, but mixing with Gentiles, which was just not to be done. They colluded with sinners. So they were often spoken about in the same sentence as prostitutes and the, the, the worst type of sinners. They were really, really badly considered by everybody who was a follower of the Jewish religion. So here we have Zacchaeus. He's the chief tax collector. And it's fair to say that before he meets Jesus, he's a greedy, selfish, money-loving, scheming man. That's it in a nutshell. We can't, we can't you know, make it any nicer than that. He was a greedy man. He was a selfish man. He'd probably have bodyguards. He wouldn't mind seeing people suffer because you need to pay this tax. And what they would do is they'd stop, tax collectors would stop people uh, as they were walking along with their donkeys with all of their oils and all of their material on the donkey, and they'd say, right, I'm going to tax you, and that's worth X amount. And it was worth a lot less than what they suggested it was worth. So he was, he was a deceitful man. He was a, he was a nasty piece of work, most probably. Um, but he runs ahead. He's interested to see Jesus. He says, it says he wants to catch a glimpse of Jesus. He's interested. He's intrigued. What's all this about? So he runs ahead and he climbs a tree. Now, that would have been a funny sight. Just imagine in his, in his robes, a rich man, so it would have been very opulent robes, um, and he's climbing up this tree like a school kid. And people would have laughed at him, I would have thought. They would have said, what are you, what are you doing, Zacchaeus? You're going to look to see how much you can tax him as well. You know, and the reason I had to go up the tree was no one would let him in front because they hated him. They wouldn't go to the front, you can see, they hated him. So he, he runs ahead, he climbs up this tree. He's up the tree, he's in position. He sees in the distance the crowd coming nearer and nearer. The noise is getting louder. And the crowd in that crowd are the disciples with Jesus. They're people that perhaps have been healed, people that have been fed by Jesus, clamoring to touch his cloak, clamoring to see this man clamoring to see what the next miracle he's going to do, what's his next teaching, is he going to challenge the Pharisees? There's an excitement in the air. And Jesus comes near to the tree, and he stops. And the crowd stops. What's he going to do? Is he going to teach? Is he going to heal somebody? And Jesus looks up into the tree. 
And he looks at Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus looks down. And all the crowd look up at Zacchaeus. And the crowd are probably thinking at this stage, great, Zacchaeus is going to get his comeuppance. The most powerful man in this nation is about to take on Zacchaeus. We're looking forward to this. This rip-off merchant is going, to, is going to get his comeuppance now. He's going to be publicly humiliated up the tree where he can't go anywhere. Brilliant. They're all expectant. They're waiting for it. And Jesus looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, he calls him by name. Zacchaeus, come down from the tree immediately. They're waiting for the next phrase. I want to come to your house. I want to come to your house. A shock. Zacchaeus is now looking at Jesus. He's called him by name. He was bracing himself. I want to come to your home. The, the crowd cannot believe it. It says they muttered. I'm sure they did a lot of muttering. They could not believe it. Jesus, you, you want to go to his home. That's not what they wanted to hear from Jesus' mouth. You see, going to somebody's home in Jewish times was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of not just showing hospitality. It was a sign of, I want to be your friend. Jesus sings, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, I want to be your mate. I want to be your friend. Unbelievable. Why would you want to be the friend of this sinning, scheming man? But that is what Jesus says to Zacchaeus. I want to be your friend. Jesus shows Zacchaeus such love and such acceptance, such grace, such mercy. And what we're witnessing here is not just one man inviting to another man to his home for dinner. We're witnessing the salvation of a lost soul. We are witnessing here a man being saved. He is being saved. We don't know exactly when, but at some point in this moment, Zacchaeus is saved. He's born again. He comes to believe in Jesus. And Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, I don't know what your journey has been or actually journey still is now in terms of salvation. For some, it's a Damascus Road experience. For some, it's, uh, I can say, the exact moment. And we read these books, you know, Nicky Cruz and Run Baby Run and The Cross and the Switchblade and, and hear stories like Ian McCormack who was on his deathbed and stung by box jellyfish and dying and he was a complete, hard-hearted non-believer and he said the Lord's Prayer and he is saved at that moment. And, and these people can pinpoint the moment they were saved and maybe that's your story. But for other people, that's, that salvation is a journey. It's not a Damascus road. It's more like the, the M1. It's a long journey. It's a long route towards salvation, and we can't actually pinpoint the moment that it happened. It's difficult to. Charles Everett Coop was the 13th uh, Surgeon General of the United States, so he was the top surgeon in the United States, and he worked at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and he was a Surgeon General under Reagan's government. And he tells of how a nurse in the hospital, Erna Goulding, a valued friend, invited him to go along to a church meeting at the, church, at the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And actually, he said, no, not interested. But then he says these words in his biography. He says, the next Sunday, I finished rounds early, and I found my feet taking me to the 10th Presbyterian Church. I entered the back door and quietly slipped up the balcony. I was just going to observe. I liked what I saw and I was fascinated by what I heard. I saw the congregation respond willingly and generously to social needs. This was no empty 
religion. And he goes on to say, I returned for the evening service. I did that each Sunday for two years. And except when I was out of town, I never missed a morning or evening service. And after about seven months, I realized that I had become a participant and not an observer. What made sense to that congregation made sense to me as well. I was a believer. That was Coop's story. There was no immediate revelation. It was a journey. But be it Coop's story, or Cruz's story, or McCormack's story, or our story, the fact is we need to be born again. We have to be saved. That is what Jesus came for, to save us, to seek and to save the lost. And that is the, the, the joy of the gospel that we come to receive. And that's what Zacchaeus is experiencing here. He's experiencing salvation. Just one interesting point there. Go back to Erna, the nurse, in Coop's story there. She invited him and he said no. Just as a little sideline, never underestimate the power of your invitation. Never be discouraged when you pick up one of those cards and you say, do you want to come to our Easter service? Do you want to come to our Alpha course? Do you want to... An invitation is powerful. It speaks, even if somebody doesn't accept it. He did accept it in the end. So the most important question before we, we, we ask ourselves about generosity and, and, and we talk, and it's important to do this, but the most important question is, are you saved? Have you been converted? Do you know him? Is he Lord of your life? That is the most important question. And Tim Keller, who's the teacher, the author... Um, and the pastor, and wrote this series on generosity, he points out that the Christian faith differs from all other religions in that our salvation is accomplished by Jesus through our faith in him, not through our own good deeds. And that includes deeds of ministry. It includes deeds of generosity. It includes deeds of giving. It's not through our own good deeds that we are saved. It is only Jesus who saves us. And C.S. Lewis sums it up. He says, niceness, all good, wholesome, integrated personality, it's an excellent thing. But we must not suppose that even if we succeeded in making everyone nice, we would have saved their souls. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might even be more difficult to save. God became man to turn people into sons and daughters, not simply to produce better men and women of the old kind. And that's what's happening with Zacchaeus. He's been transformed. He's been turned into a new man. And we see how he responded. See, there are many generous and nice people in the world. You only need to look at how much this country raises at sport relief and comic relief and for Decca pills. We're a generous nation. Um, Dan, my oldest son, went busking uh, one year. I think it might have been he needed to raise some money for Christmas presents. <laughs> but he decided to go busking in Wickham Town Centre. And he came back beaming <laughs> because he said, they're so generous. He'd had a guitar case full of one-pound coins and two-pound coins and little kids giving up money. And he said, one, one man uh, listened to him for five minutes, came up to him afterwards and said, I really like your music, keep doing what you're doing, and gave him a 20-pound note. I mean, that's generous. For a 17-year-old, that is generous. 
So there is generosity, and generosity is a good thing. But we need to be saved. Actually, don't we know that? In the horrific atrocities we're hearing, the world, we need a saviour. We need to be saved. We must be born again. That is the key, and that's what the story we're reading here as a kid. He is born again. And Zacchaeus, after he meets Jesus, after this encounter, he, he, he stands up, he says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. I'm going to repay anyone that I've, 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 I've deceived. Four times the amount. That's far more than he had to do. But look at his response versus the rich young ruler that we looked at three weeks ago. See, the rich young ruler says to Jesus, Good teacher. Good teacher. Zacchaeus says, Look, Lord. Look, Lord. It's more than believing Jesus is a good teacher. It's believing that he is Lord. And it's responding that he is Lord. And that's what Zacchaeus does. He believes that Jesus is Lord. So our salvation is, is, is key to, to generosity. It's at the heart of generosity. We start with being born again and being saved. Uh, and then we receive his righteousness. We receive the free gift of righteousness, rightness with God. Rightness with God, right standing with God, complete righteousness with God in Christ Jesus. Not through what we do, not through our own acts of righteousness, but as a gift we receive the perfect righteousness because we know that nothing that we do can meet the standards that God requires of us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In our small group on Thursday that Ellie led, she got us into groups at the beginning and said, let's discuss the things that get in the way of people becoming a Christian. What are the common barriers that get in the way? And one of the most common ones was that people believe that Christianity is about following a load of rules and regulations and trying to be good and striving to please this angry God and that I just can't do that. But we know that the good news is that we are made righteous, right with God, through faith. And that's really important when we talk about this topic of generosity. Because when Jesus says to Zacchaeus, surely salvation has come to this house, he wasn't saved by his generosity. He was saved, he was made right, and then he was generous. He was generous because he was righteous. Not he was righteous because he was generous. And we have to receive that revelation as well if we're to be truly free in the area of generosity in all ways. Martin Luther sums this up so well. Martin Luther, 1483. So some of this is a bit oldie Latin. But he was a German professor of theology, composer. He was a priest. He was a monk, very righteous. And he was a significant figure in the Protestant Reformation. And he talks about how he came to that revelation that righteousness with God was a gift that he had to receive. And these words are surprising, actually. He says, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. A verse in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, has stood in my way, and that verse was, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. He says, I hated that phrase, righteousness of God, Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I began to understand 
that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live by a gift of God, by faith. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There, a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me when I realized that the law was one thing and the gospel was another. I broke through. Isn't that a wonderful, I broke through. He had been struggling and striving and trying and living as a monk and praying how many times a day and living righteously by the law. But he said, I still felt so dirty. And then I broke through as I realized that I receive this gift of righteousness. Have you broken through? Have you broken through? Have you received that revelation that nothing you do, nothing that you do can make you righteous, but believe in his righteousness, but believe in the perfect righteousness that Christ has given you. So Jesus came to save, and then he gave Zacchaeus this righteousness. I imagine Zacchaeus just felt forgiven. He just felt cleansed. He just felt accepted. He just felt that, wow, I'm in the presence of, and yet I feel... I can be here. He was accepted. He was made righteous. And that is where we need to be at. It can be, this, this, this topic of generosity can be challenging. It, it can actually, it's kind of two options really to some extent. It can make us feel perhaps a bit self-righteous. It can, it can lead us into that. Because, you know, we're brought up at school right from early age about performance. In a performance culture. Where if you do this, you're good. And this topic can, can, can do that, or, or just as bad, it can make us feel self-condemned and guilty, make us feel like we're failing in an area, and, and oh God, well, I, can't, I, can't, I can't achieve this, it's just too much, I'm struggling to forgive, I'm, I can't be this hospitable, I can't give that, I'm just feeling condemned. This, this topic is one that causes us issues in our marriage, or it's one that, call, you know, it's a, it's a constant battle, I just make it... That's not the heart of this, this series. The heart of this series is that we're released and, and free and that we're blessed. That's his heart. And that's why Paul says, give joyfully, cheerfully, not under compulsion. You know, we're not about putting rules and laws. It's about being free in this. But from that place of receiving and knowing that we're righteous, that we have complete righteousness and acceptance in him. Now, does this mean that we get saved and we think, well, what a result, I'm righteous and don't need to be hospitable, don't need to forgive people, we don't need to give, we don't need to be generous, because I'm saved now. Well, of course not. We all know that. And look how Zacchaeus responded. He said, I will give half of my possessions to the poor and repay four times what I've defrauded people. That's far more than he had to do under Jewish law. Now, just imagine what that means. Two candlesticks, I give one of them away. Two chariots, I give one of them away. Imagine the actual outworking of that. He's going around Jericho, or his servants are, giving away his possessions to the poor. This is the chief tax collector giving away. Now, I imagine with that came an apology. Why are you giving me this? Because I ripped you off, I'm sorry. I, I charged too much interest. 
And then the four times. You only need to give me two times. No, I've met Jesus. I've met Jesus. I'm going to give you four times. I need to be radical in this because I've met Jesus. And I'm sorry. Now, as he's doing that, he's giving away his power. He's giving away his authority. He's the chief guy. The other tax collectors, what are you doing, Zacchaeus? He's, his, his authority as the chief tax collector is just dissipating. He's sacrificing his power. And we know that the ultimate sacrifice of power was shown by Jesus on the cross. The one who could have called down legions of angels sacrificed his power for us. This is just a glimpse with Zacchaeus. But Jesus showed the ultimate sacrifice of power. He didn't have to, but he did for our sins, that we could have eternal life. So we see this Zacchaeus giving away, giving over and above, and sacrificing his power. And so too with us, you know, when we forgive, we're giving up power. We give up the power to hold that person in the place. When we give, when we give of our time, it's to some extent giving up power. The things that we have can give up power. And, and that's a sacrifice. And, and, you know, today's Pentecost Sunday. It's the, the Sunday that we remember the power of the Holy Spirit falling on the disciples in the upper room. The power of God. And, you know, generosity ultimately is a miracle. I mean, I, 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 it's a miracle. Because as, as we had a few weeks ago, we're naturally selfish. So generosity is a miracle. And what enables a miracle is the power of God. The power of God at work in us. That same power of the Holy Spirit that brought Jesus out of the tomb is at work in us and enables us and helps us. Zacchaeus had an encounter with the power of God. And as a result of that encounter, he's generous because the power of God met with him. Did he stay as a tax collector? Who knows? There was nothing wrong with being a tax collector in Jesus' eyes. There's no sin. Being a greedy, money-loving, deceptive, thieving tax collector was a sin. But being a tax collector was not a sin. John the Baptist was baptizing people in the River Jordan in John 3. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, John replied. He didn't say, stop being a tax collector. Stop lying. Stop thieving. So, working in business, working in hospitals, in whatever we do, the key is, are we being honest? Are we loving money? Are we working just to gain more? There are many examples of successful people that have been called by God to then share that with others. Asa Candler, he was the entrepreneur behind Coca-Cola. He started from humble beginnings as a drugstore owner in Atlanta, and he grew Coca-Cola into a national brand. And Asa Candler was a major donator to the Methodist Church. His $1 million gift to a small college in Oxford in the city of Georgia was to become the Methodist College of the South. Dave Thomas was the founder and CEO of Wendy's. I like this one the third largest hamburger chain in the world. He named Wendy's after his daughter. And as an adopted child and devout Christian, Thomas founded the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, a non-profit organization that makes the adoption process easier. He was also supporter and donator to St. Jude's Children's Cancer Research and many other charities. And finally, Joe Malone. Many of you would have heard of Joe Malone, the perfume brand. She's a 
British perfumer. She grew up on a council estate in Bexley Heath. She, went, she had chronic dyslexia. She left school with no qualifications. And in 1999, she sold Jo Malone to Estee Lauder for undisclosed millions. She's a strong Christian. She says that her faith has a huge impact on her decisions and her life. And she donates much money to many charities, including the Magic Breakfast Charity for underprivileged children to ensure that they start the day with a healthy meal. So Zacchaeus may have carried on in his work. God is not against success and business, but he does call us to give and to help and to be generous. The great thing about the church, the early church in the book of Acts, the church today is that we have such a mix. We have such a mix of people in the church because Jesus came for us all. Jesus came to save all of us. He called us all to be sons and daughters primarily, to receive his righteousness. And out of that overflow comes our generosity. And we need his power. We need his help. We need his faith, actually, to do all of this. I'd just like to conclude this series. Um, if you'd like to close your eyes and just imagine this scene. I'm just going to conclude with this. So picture in your mind a small pond filled with fresh rainwater. And over time, algae builds up in that pond and the water turns green and becomes dirty. It's no longer fresh and revitalizing. It slowly begins to evaporate. And now picture in your mind a gurgling brook. The water's flowing over the pebbles. It's clean and it's sparkling. It's fresh, it's active. There's no algae. And the water is running freely. So you've got those two pictures in your mind. Now the water in those two analogies can be likened to our resources. Our time, our hospitality, our forgiveness, our money our power. And when we keep all those resources for ourselves, we can become like that pond. You know, the algae of selfishness and greed builds up and the water becomes stagnant and poisonous. But when we allow our resources to flow through us and into the lives of others, in our relationships, in our ministry, in our time, in our money, we become like streams of living water. The water remains clean and refreshing. It doesn't run dry, but it does refresh others. And the Lord wants to encourage us to be like that bubbling brook, that we would not be like that pond. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your generosity to us. We thank you, Jesus, that you gave up all of your power on the cross so that we could have eternal life. Jesus, we pray you would help us to be a bubbling brook. Help us to be generous. We pray, Holy Spirit, give us the power, give us the faith, stretch us and help us to be generous. We thank you that we are made righteous. We thank you that there is no condemnation. And we thank you, Lord, that you have saved us. And Jesus, we thank you that as we go on to our day and our week, 
that you look upon us with delight and with joy and you encourage us to be that bubbling brook. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Ron.